listeners of the From 78 podcast. I am From 78, and you are listening to that spooky music and my voice in your headphones or on your car speakers or, or somehow, wherever you are, you're hearing it, and I'm glad that you are. By the way, what do you think of the spooky music? Is it something you enjoy? Is it something you don't enjoy? When I picked it, uh, I thought it, it fit with my theme of this this podcast, which is talking to different people about their experience of being in time and the ghosts from their past that are haunting them, the specters from their future that are haunting them. That that was my idea when I picked the music. But uh, if you don't like it, that's cool. Uh, let me know. There's a couple ways you can do that. One is just to shoot me an email from 78 podcast. That's F-R-O-M number seven, number eight podcast at gmail.com. That will uh, make an email appear in my inbox. I will read it. And I will take whatever words are in it seriously. Well, maybe I won't actually. I don't know. If you're, if you send me email that is not meant to be taken seriously, then I won't take it seriously. But um, yeah, whatever. I'm, yeah, I'm tired as I'm recording this introduction to this podcast. Wow, this is off to a great start. I'm doing awesome. All right. Anyway, so what are you gonna about to listen to here? Um, you're about to listen to the first part of an interview that I did with one of my fellow uh, one of my fellow podcasting comrades comrade adam comrade adam if you didn't already know this is somebody who does a podcast called red library a political education podcast for today's left and it's good i mean it's really really good it is an awesome podcast if you are into um doing deep dives on different texts that that are sometimes easy to to read but oftentimes hard to read his podcast is a great one to do one of the things i really like about it is that uh you know he has a guest on and him and his guests they do a pretty thorough talk through of something that they've read together and you know there are some texts that you can talk about and you can probably talk about them within like an hour format or something like that but on Red Library, they don't let time turn into a bully. And if a text takes a lot longer than an hour to really dive into and get through, then they take a lot longer than an hour. They'll break it up when they need to. But what you get there is some really solid, really well-constructed analysis uh, of different things. So anyways, I, 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 like I said, I hope that you are already a listener of Red Library. But if you're not, I want to encourage you to go and check out the work that he's doing. There will be a link to his podcast in the show notes for this episode. So you can go there if you don't know where to go and you can click that link and it will automatically take you over to his corner of the internet. Okay. Uh, Oh, one last thing. One last thing before we jump into the interview. Uh, If you are currently a subscriber to the Red Library, then you can probably skip this episode because um, Adam decided to post it in his feed and he is more organized than I am. And he was able to get the episode edited and up faster than I was. And so if you've already heard it there, you're just going to be hearing the same thing here. Uh, No need for you to do that. You can just go ahead and skip this one and probably the next one too, because you will have already heard them on Red Library. Okay, having said that all, let's jump into the first part of my interview with Comrade Adam.
right, so this is the From 78 podcast, and I am From 78, and today I am sitting down and talking with Comrade Adam. And I'm going to let Comrade Adam introduce himself, because talking about other people at the beginning of a podcast is something that I'm just not that good at. (laughs) So Comrade Adam, why don't you talk about yourself, what you do, why you do it, and uh, anything else you'd like to say? Yeah, well, uh, again, my name is uh, my name is Adam. I go by Comrade Adam on Red Library, a political education podcast for today's left. So that is a, uh, a leftist theory and, and political history and organizing show that I've been running since about January um, that I started mostly to just uh, satisfy some weird perverse urge that I have to just talk about this kind of stuff nonstop. And, and it's that way I don't terrorize other people in my life who just don't give a damn about any of it. Um, I'm also uh, a clinical social worker. Um, I work at a a local nonprofit here in Austin, Texas, focused on uh, literacy for uh, low-income adults and their families. Um, Yeah, I work a lot in my practice with survivors of violence and trauma, which has a lot of strange and and really interesting overlap with my political uh, perspective and, and what I'm interested in. Um, yeah, I think that, that pretty much covers it. That's, that's pretty much me day to day. Um, I have two cats. One of them might jump up and, and get a little obnoxious in the recording. So we'll see how that goes. What are the cats names? <laughs> so one of them is named Syria and then the other one is Bitsa and we call her B. So B is probably the one who's going to, uh, decide to incur upon our recording here. Got it. That's cool. I've had, I've had cats make appearances and dogs make appearances <laughs> yeah. when I, I've tried to record before. And I actually think it, it kind of like, um, endears people oddly yeah, to a podcast it's, it's when they hear that stuff. Yeah. It's strangely humanizing. It's like, Oh, I'm not just some like, uh, you know, I'm not living in a bunker somewhere just surrounded by like Marxist theory books. I actually have a life funny enough. So. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So, uh, the way that I, I like to kind of start these things off is, um, this is gonna be really easy talking to you because you're probably really familiar with the beginning of the communist manifesto where Marx, you know, says that there is this specter that is haunting Europe and it is a specter of communism. And that, that became kind of my starting point. Uh, I, I thought of this podcast one day because I was reading The Specters of Marx, the Derrida book. Mm-hmm. And he was talking, sure. you know, about, about hauntology and haunting. And as I continued to think about it more, I started to think about how there are ghosts from our past that are haunting us. Yeah. And I kind of took that idea from Mark Fisher, I think. And then there are specters from our future, you know, that are haunting us. And, mm-hmm. and so what I, I like to open up with is, you know, from your perspective, doing the things that you do, living the life that you've lived, what would you say are the ghosts that are, are haunting, you know, the things that you're doing? And what would you say are the specters that are haunting the things that you're doing? Yeah, um, I'm so excited to talk about this question because Fisher and Derrida, I mean, these are huge influences on my thinking and, you know, not just some disembodied intellectual sort of way of thinking about larger political problems, but, you know, in a very deeply visceral psychological sort of way. So yes, I'm, I'm, this is right up my alley. Um, in terms of what ghosts haunt my life and have haunted my life, um, you know, I was thinking about this a lot over the last couple of weeks. And whenever I think about larger political historical events, I, you know, I think the obvious one, and I know a past uh, guest on your show talked about it, is obviously 9-11. And being in high school, uh, right, starting high school, right, whenever the event happened, it's one of those things that gets sort of ingrained in your, in your memory of what it was like whenever you saw the videos. And, and I was sitting in my cafeteria in my high school. Um, you know, so I think that one is 
something that still haunts uh, my day-to-day experience. You know, recently I was coming back uh, into the States from a trip to Spain uh, with my, my spouse. And it was really shocking to see the sort of ghost of this like militarized, uh, low intensity, low grade police state that, you know, is, is something that still reverberates. And, and it was almost shocking to me as someone who is as political and, and sort of focused on this stuff as I am would still be so, and, and just, um, I don't know. You're so uh, sort of, I don't, I don't want to say the word immune, but it's, you forget how much that has changed and mm-hmm. how much that history still lives with us. And this sort of opening up of this like terror of just violence of the other that could incur at any time. And so it was shocking to me to be like, wow, even though I think about this shit all the time, God, even I have forgotten how much that changed. Yeah. You know, it's it, one of the things that has come up in conversations I've done with people, um, is the ghost of 9-11. It's come up repeatedly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, what I'm noticing, and I don't exactly know how to articulate this, so I'm kind of working this out in real time here. People who tend to be on the left, mm-hmm. they they have this you know experience of 9-11, and it's a meaningful experience. It's a very haunting experience. It's something yeah. that for many of them I would say is formative, but it isn't formative in the way that it seems to be portrayed, I think, kind of in general kind of culture, right? Uh, the way that I think mm-hmm. about how, how people will talk about 9-11 as this thing that that haunts them and kind of drives them closer to this uh, kind of performative patriotism mm-hmm. uh, and those sorts of things. And people on the left, yeah. I don't, I mean, that that isn't, I guess in a sense you could say that is something that happens to them, but in, in another sense you could say it's not. And I'm really curious, you know, having lived through that, being somebody who is committed to, you know, leftist causes and uh, taking those leftist causes and not making them just kind of like these abstract things that people think and write about, but taking them and making them into like real material changes in the real world. How do you see the event of 9-11 and the way that it haunts you uh, affecting that, the way that you are a leftist in the world today? Yeah, well, I think this is such a great question. Um, To me, I think it it made my starting point anti-imperialism. Um, and, and, you know, that word gets thrown around and, and it's a huge, almost like, uh, apora, I guess, in the left now, you know, the, all these conversations about the thing that the left lacks is a strong internationalist anti-imperialist framework. And, and I think I agree with that to, to a certain extent. I also don't agree with it as if it's the same exact thing that Lenin would have talked about a hundred years ago. I mean, you know, it both is and is not at the same time, um, so maybe we could talk about what that means if it's of interest. Uh, but to me, I think the the initial starting point was the the just complete catastrophic horror of watching this military invasion starting to unfold right in front of your eyes. And, you know, I was recently talking with a guest on our show, uh, Professor Jason Brownlee, who's written a lot about Middle Eastern politics and, and authoritarianism and, and Egypt and American intervention. Um, or American invasion uh, is what it actually should be called. But we had a whole discussion about, you know, whenever the Iraq war was revving up and the the huge protests, the the mass movements that arose internationally a, a, in opposition to it. And yet at the end of the day, the, the invasion still happened. And I think that to me, this is sort of a weird, um, almost kind of eerie thing I don't even know how to articulate myself is what is the impact and what has the impact been on people on the left to see 
that despite the largest mass movements in history at the time, this sort of international solidarity and sympathy that we had, you know, as, a, as people of the United States from all over the world, that yet at the same time, you know, the forces of capital and white supremacy and, and however else you want to describe them, American imperialism still at the end of the day just steamed forward with, with nothing stopping it. You know, that, that despite all those mass movements, it didn't stop it. And to me, I think that is a deeply uh, tragic and uh, sort of ghostly thing that haunts us now. And, and right now, as we speak with mass movements happening in Chile, in Lebanon, you know, these sort of arisings that I've, I was almost thinking about this, that, you know, it's, it's right around 50 years since May 68, another period of international uprisings and mass movements. And mm-hmm. yet at the same time, those, those ebbed and people went back to work, you know, the barricades went down and, and capital kept marching forward. So I don't know. I mean, these are a lot of things I think a lot about myself and I'm trying to figure out how do these affect us? Um, and maybe for me, I think part of it is sort of a disenchantment with the idea that some spontaneous mass movement will be the answer. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as you say that, one of the things that kind of comes into my own mind is the way that kind of Freud haunts my own own thoughts when I, I think about this stuff, right? Oh yeah. And rightly so. You know, I there's a reason why I have a Sigmund Freud bobblehead on my on my office uh desk where I do therapy and I mm-hmm. feel like I need his specter. I need his ghost there all the time. So Yeah, it's like with with that incident in particular though, right? It's it's you know, there's this display that could be described as, you know, just this um explosion of aggressive mm-hmm. drive. You know, yeah. and and what could have happened, right, I think, is what you were talking about a little bit ago here, solidarity, where people could have mm-hmm. said like that, that's not good. What's going on here? How do, how do we want to respond to this thing? And they did, but the way that they responded was, you know, in in like kind. It, it was mm-hmm. more just kind of like... um a complete and total, uh, seemingly like like breakdown of of the ways that human beings have kind of used culture and government and politics and a whole bunch of other really complicated social technologies to kind of sublimate some of their drives, right? Yeah, and, and it just it just goes nuts. Uh, one of the people who I thought a lot about during that time, uh, and this is one of those those specters or ghosts, really, I guess, because I think of ghosts as people from the past that that continues mm-hmm. to haunt my thought. Um, is Rosa Luxemburg, yeah, and, you know, and the the way that that what she was enduring in Poland, and, and the and the the you know way that it led to her tragically losing her life, being killed, and all that for for refusing to go along with this kind of like unsublimated drive towards violence uh, and whatnot, and, and I say it haunts me because you know I like Rosa Luxemburg a lot, but. I don't want to look at her as the right about everything. Uh, I, yeah. I think that there mm-hmm. are, are some real, for me anyways, uh, things in her, her writing that I look at. And I, I look at them with, with suspicion and I think like, I'm not so sure about this. Uh, uh, but w- in regards to her, her commitment to having a revolution that didn't entail, you know, some kind of like mass militarization, I'm definitely all for that. And I'm curious what mm-hmm. you might think about this. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I feel like some of the same questions that she was critical of Lenin about and some of those debates still haunt us. You know, whenever I I 
start unraveling this idea about who who are the ghosts that haunt me, um, the failed German revolution of 1917, 1918, and precisely the sort of larger historical events that read, led to Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Leibniz being murdered, those those are still ghosts that haunt us today. You know, not not only just me individually, but through this sort of larger communal um, social practice of leftist politics. I mean, I, one of the most important things I think that um, reading people like Mark Fisher and like Derrida and this sort of approach has, has really brought me to, to consider strongly and be very critical of is how these larger historical failures haunt the entire leftist political quadrant or, you know, whatever the hell that is, you know, the same questions about workers councils and, you know, spontaneous mass movements and the need for a party or, you know, dare I say a dictatorship of the proletariat, which, you know, these questions are so actively debated and there's this deeply uh, melancholic attachment to a lot of these things. And, and I don't even think it necessarily requires a sort of in-depth understanding of the history of these questions necessarily to, to really kind of like pull you in, pull you into that sort of attachment to these, these sort of ghosts and, and, and to, in some ways be arrested in, in whatever new ways of thinking about them that we could have. So in terms of like a militarization, yeah, I think this is absolutely still a, an ever present question and, and sort of fear. Um, you know, I've interviewed number, uh, a number of DSA members uh, uh, for my show. And one of the things that you kind of always find is that there's this deep sort of fear about the idea of a militarized sort of approach to sort of radical revolutionary social change. Um, you know, and, and I've also seen people that I've organized with who find examples of that, like maybe going on in India or in Nepal or wherever it might be. And, and this idea that, well, that is obviously the answer. Like we should just throw ourselves into that. And, and it's sort of a frustration with everyone else who doesn't see that as being the immediate solution. Um, so, you know, to me, I think that those answers those those ghosts still haunt me very much about those exact same questions. Um, and yeah, to me, it's almost as if, you know, there's just layer upon layer of these ghosts that haunt us. Um, you know, I mentioned May 68. I still think about that all the time. And I guess the more I've learned the history behind leftist politics, the more it feels almost like I find more and more ghosts that I'm just inviting into my life. And mm-hmm. And it feels like what needs to be done, it also feels... Uh, that it makes it a much more complicated and much more difficult to figure out what the hell is to be done today. Yeah, I think that a lot of times the, that's the the thing about ghosts, right? They can they can be annoying because they can they can fill you <laughs> yeah. with you know doubt and anxiety and different things. But at the same time, their presence I think can really be nice in a, in a certain mm-hmm. way, right? Like the, the inviting those ghosts into your life is something that can be. I would say rather productive because it can, yeah. they, they can give you pause. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and for me, I think that's really good, right? Like I, I know that when my blood runs hot, uh, that's, that's the time where I think that the ghosts kind of get drowned out. And that's probably when it becomes really more important to, mm. to not do that. Right. To, to really try if I can, you know, um, to engage in, in that, to, to turn up the haunting as opposed to let the anger turn it down. Um, uh, I, I think that's a really beautiful way to say that. Yeah, I would I would very much agree. I think that it's almost whenever I feel like I get into these frustrating deadlocks, 
in actual political organizing work, it almost seems as if that's the time to, you know, as Nigel Tufnell from, from Spinal Tap would say, it's like, turn it up to 11. You know, it's like the yeah. hauntings need to go as high as possible precisely in that moment to figure out how to orient yourself in, the, in those exact struggles. I think you're dead on about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know I, I had this recently. I was at a, a meeting um, where people were talking about um, uh, the current like democratic primary uh, was mm-hmm. one of the, the things that was coming up. Right. And it's this idea that, um, you know, if you don't support this candidate, then, you know, you don't get it, whoever you are, you know, they use that yeah. in the most general sense. And, and uh, there was other people there. Uh, I was in this, this other group that was saying like, no, hold on a second. You know, I, I don't know, but that's actually a really great organizing strategy to come at people, <laughs> you know, with that, that I, the way that you just did, you know what I mean? Like yeah. you're in a room of people who are on your side, dude. Um, and, and you're already kind of aggro. So how's this going to come across <laughs> if you try to engage, you know, somebody yeah. who is maybe not, uh, they might be kind of on the fence politically, but mm-hmm. if you come at them, um, being, uh, kind of like this, this stereotypical, like angry leftist or something like that, I don't know, but that's going to help. Um, and at the same time, I, I don't, I, I, it's like bring the passion that's good. Like, and, and bring the commitment. I think that's also good. But if you let those things drown out the ghosts, then, you know, <laughs> I think that we end up walking into uh, a pretty bad situation that we could avoid uh, if we just, I think, had that capacity to kind of just uh, tune in, you know what I mean? Let, let, let yeah. the ghosts, let the specters do their thing, um, you know, have your little momentary seance or something like that. And See yeah, what comes up. Well, it's interesting that you talked about that example of being the the stereotypical like aggro angry leftist who's just yelling at everybody in the room because they haven't read you know what is to be done by Lenin or something like that. I think maybe a, a really personal ghost for me that intersects with a lot of the political work and and what we do on the show even is in some ways not a particular person, I would say, but just sort of my my background growing up. I grew up in a very conservative, I mean, very, very conservative to say the least, uh, town. Um, my family was very, very conservative in a lot of ways. And, and in some sense, you know, the ghost that I kind of always feel like is walking right next to me is this former version of myself who, you know, was like on the opposite end of the political spectrum. And I feel like whenever I'm engaging and thinking about things politically, especially in terms of real day-to-day organizing and talking with people, I always ask myself, would this be the thing that I would have been open to hearing 15 years ago? Would I have been responsive to that? And I think that to me, it's one of those ghosts that I think is very productive to always ask myself, you know, with like with my family members, a lot of my family members are very, you know, right wing and, and I don't shy away from talking about politics and my political positions. And I always ask myself, you know, those people like haunt or I guess, yeah, like sort of haunt me in this very productive way um, because it always sort of puts a check on my um, my whatever tendency I might have to be some like angry, like aggro, angry leftist just yelling at everyone all the time about this shit. Yeah. You know, th- th- this is this is kind of a weird segue. But um, when I think about that, when I think about the the angry leftist thing, it kind of trope, I guess, uh, you know, I, I work on a, in a university mm-hmm. and so the the kind of angry leftist that I'm thinking of when I say that a lot of times is the sort of like woker than thou leftist who is saying like yeah. if if you don't support you know somebody because of their you know their their race their gender um, their sexual orientation or whatever um, it's that that it's almost as if those sorts of like um, the, that style of identity politics becomes um, 
a thing that that people really care about. Sometimes they, I, oftentimes, in fact, I think they care more about that than they do about like actual policy type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but that's the thing there. It's just like, and if you if you don't support this person, it's actually because you either are consciously or unconsciously a racist, a sexist, you know, mm-hmm. somebody who hates this particular individual or this group of people or hates this identity or something like that. Sure. And that's the thing that I, I see that kind of shutting down a lot of conversations, right? Um, because there's a way you can have those. I, I'm, I really believe there's a way you can have that kind of conversation with another person and have it not uh, kind of uh, just fall into this this pit of um, uh, a, a kind of like micro level version of what we were talking about, maybe just at, at the beginning of the show where, uh, you know, your drive, your drive force has come up and, and just kind of want to play and dominate this other person into submission, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or, and if you don't do that, at least you get them to just kind of like walk away. Um, yeah. And, and I, as I say this, I know I'm being really critical of the left. I want to be really clear about one thing. People on on the right do the same thing too. So I don't want to, you know, only say that this is like angry leftists. There's angry people on the right. Um, and what I, I think would be kind of really productive for anybody, depending on, you know, where they fall along a political continuum, is to just sort of uh, have that time where you, you do you, what you were saying. You check in with that previous version of yourself. You check in with your ghosts, whatever they are, uh, mm-hmm. and try to use that to inform uh, the the thinking that you're doing and the acting that you're doing at the same time. Yeah, I mean, as someone who also, you know, exists in the in the realm of social work and, and went through a social work school uh, that was, you know, very, very liberal. Uh, to me, I think a lot of those those sorts of things are symptomatic of a particular set of assumptions that underlie those types of politics. Speaking of, you know, ghosts that haunt us in, in this sort of realm, I think about the the ghosts of the way that democratic liberal politics has has sort of shaped particular conversations around identity and around what power is and how power plays out and and a sense of agency and purpose in your life and how those things are so severely constricted within the the structures of capital and mm-hmm. the relations of capitalist production that to me i think that we will find a sense of power and a sense of control if we don't have that in our lives, which I think is what a lot of people on the left don't have. And it's what drives us to a lot of this sort of perspective on the world um, that it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't remove that sense of wanting to feel a sense of power and agency in your life. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of times what I've seen in that sort of, you know, like ID poll, like identity politics sort of approach has been, a lot of things that I would, I guess I would describe as being very idealized, the idea that political change and power solely exists in the realm of ideas and the inner states of consciousness someone has. Mm-hmm. And, and also in like the larger political goals that you are hoping to achieve through engaging in that kind of like political discourse, or I mean, more often than not, it's a lack thereof. Like, for example, a lot of those types of discussions, I think, are very much focused on uh, like representation and the goal is to have a sort of broader array of like people represented within certain institutions as they exist. And I think that a lot of times those sorts of, those sorts of institutions 
like thrive and absolutely know how to incorporate these desires for representation within their functioning themselves. I mean, this is a pretty, you know, cliche kind of argument here, but you see these articles about, yeah, like the head of the CIA is now a woman and like, we're making really, like really substantial progress in terms of gender relations. And it's that, and the woman who's in charge of the CIA is like, you know, the torturer in chief is essentially what they are. And like, Mm -hmm. they absolutely are contributing to the just complete global levels of devastation and environmental devastation that the U.S. military and the military industrial complex contributes to. So I think part of the reason why we don't have those like larger policy sorts of perspectives is almost because the the nature of the discourse itself obscures any kind of focus on that. Mm -hmm. It's almost like you don't consider that because it's not really it's almost like those things aren't accounted for in the discourse itself, because then we'd have to talk about structural power. And I don't think those discourses are interested in that. So for sure, as you're saying that um, one of the things that happens to me a lot, and this is another one thing I haven't really thought of it a whole lot here. I'm working this out as I, as I talk, but um, you know, there'll be times where I find myself thinking primarily within the confines of like, what are the material conditions here? You know, Mm -hmm. what are the real world things that are happening to real people in terms of, you know, access to, to things and stuff that they need. Um, and I'll, I'll get really into that. And then what will happen is like the ghost of idealism sort of comes up and, and say, you know, <laughs> that's, that's a hell of a ghost. Yeah. The ghost of idealism. Yeah. You know, it's like, Hey, you know, um, it, you can create really awesome policy and you can do a bunch of different things. Um, but you know, if people don't buy into this really like in their own hearts and minds, it probably won't be that effective. And, mm-hmm. and it kind of reminds me of the importance of engaging in that uh, style, right? And likewise, there, there's times where I'll go deeply into, you know, what is it that people, you talked about it, the, I think you said the intersections, you know, uh, interpsychic intersections. I don't remember exactly what you said, but I, I liked it. <laughs> um, well, who knows? We'll have to listen on the playbacks. I already forgot what I said. So. Yeah, you know, it's it, that makes sense to me because it's like there's there's this, there's things happening in people's heads and um, they have values, they have ideals, they have things that matter to them. And these are things that exist in the realm of thought. Um, mm-hmm. and, and they have a very, they control the way that people, I think, the way that people think and feel about the material conditions. And so, you know, it seems to me that, that really you have to take a binocular view here, right? You have to look at things from like an, an idealist perspective where you really are considering the hearts, the minds, the ideas uh, that people are engaging with in a meaningful way. And you do absolutely have to consider, you know, the material conditions that people are in, because if they don't have, uh, people are, are really, really, really stressed out because they truly don't have the things that they need. They're not going to have time to consider, you know, different things. Uh, they're not gonna have time to think about stuff in new and interesting ways because they're going to be so caught up in just trying to, you know, make it work on a day-to-day basis. Uh, so that's been one of the things that's really interesting when I, when I get really interested in, you know, reading Derrida or Adorno or high theory or something like that, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, this is really great. And I love this and I want to talk about it and think about it and reflect on it and write about it. Um, and I'm not as concerned about the material conditions of people. And likewise, when I go out and I'm, I'm engaging in trying to change the material conditions that people find themselves living in. Uh, the idealist stuff will come back out again too. I don't know. Do you have anything yeah. like that happen for you? I mean, every single moment of every single day. Uh, <laughs> the dialectic. To, yeah. Well, I mean, you, I mean, there it is. There's our, uh, there's our buzzword of the day is dialectic. Um, I think that at the, you know, at the risk of 
sidestepping um, answering this, you know, maybe more substantively. I, I mean, I, I guess I would say I think it's dialectical. So yeah. that that it is, it it's always this sort of um, uh, like totality of the material conditions and the ideal sort of aspects and how those play in to each other at any given time. I mean, to me, I guess uh, one of the things that I guess is important whenever I think about a more just strictly idealist approach is I'll just refer back to a really common um, point that Slavoj Žižek makes about ideology, that in some ways, many of the ways that ideology functions now is it doesn't actually require us to have a conscious buying in or sense of meaning and purpose in like social relations in any sort of way, you know, and the example he always gave was that if I go to mass on Sunday and, you know, take the Eucharist in some ways, I don't have to believe in any of that. Uh, but I still go, I still participate in the material conditions of that practice and that institution mm-hmm. um, perpetuating itself. So to me, I think these are things that whenever I'm involved in a lot of like political organizing work in terms of like the high theory, it's where I'm almost like wanting to push the idealist sort of aspect of the dialectic a little bit further to say, we have to think really critically and we have to learn about these sort of, you know, maybe um, like very high theory sorts of ways of thinking about this, but it's important to, to bring those into how we think about it and to bring those into the equation. Because if we don't, we risk, in some ways contributing to the institutions and social relations of capital perpetuating themselves uh, in, in a much more sort of um, like tight knit uh, sort of more challenging way to even understand. Uh, and we contribute to what, you know, in cybernetics you would call negative feedback loop. It's almost like our resistance to it is precisely the thing that's going to allow it to continue. And to me, you know, a lot of those theorists like Adorno and all these folks, I mean, these are ghosts that haunt me too. And this idea of this like disembodied, high theory, idealist sort of practices is a ghost, but it, it is always a productive one for me because the the material conditions are so overwhelming and so powerful. Mm-hmm. The, te- the temptation to just say, well, let's just focus on the material and let's just get something done. Let's see some sort of result that'll make things better is so like so deeply enticing and powerful that you have to find some way to counteract that. Yeah, you know, you did the. You're, I think you're still doing it. Uh, you're working way, your way through one of Foucault's lectures on your show. Yeah, yeah, we actually have the final lecture coming out uh, next week. So, well, the week after we record this today. Yeah, yeah, and those have been really, really great. Um, I, I, I've read that and I've loved listening to to you. And I can't remember the name of your interlocutor right now. Oh, that's uh, a comrade Commissar Don is is his handle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right, there we go, comrade Commissar Don. Listening to you talk about that has been really great. Because Foucault is one of those – this is a, a major ghost in my life. Oh, I, I was totally agree with that, yeah. You know, because um, – in like one of the other podcasts I listened to is Why Theory, the one that Todd McGowan does. I, I absolutely love – I was going to plug that so hard today to just be like, please go listen to that show. That show is incredible. It's really, really good in, in ways that I, I wish I could be that good. You know what I mean? But um, – be that as I mean, don't we all like they're very good at what they do? Yeah, yeah, they really are. But they, they don't like Foucault, and, and that's something that comes up, I think, <laughs> on, a, on a regular basis on that show, for good reasons. And um, you know, one of the things that that happens a lot is that you know people will say who don't like Foucault uh, will say I'm kind of straw manning the, the Y theory guys here, which I, I wish I wasn't doing, but I've started to do it, so I guess I got to follow through here. Um, yeah, there's this idea. Commit, commit to your action. <laughs> yeah, there's this idea, you know, that that Foucault says that you know it you can't escape power you know yeah. that there are mm-hmm. power dynamics in the world period 
And there is no way that you get to opt out of that. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And to me, that makes sense. I do think that there are power dynamics in the world. And I think that, you know, I, there are, I definitely do this. A lot of the people who I know try to do this. I think you try to do this, you know, recognize the power that I have, that you have, that we have, and then use that power in a way which is more responsible than irresponsible. Um, mm-hmm. Be that as it may, you know, I, there's going to be times where I do use my power in an irresponsible way. There's going to be times where the power that is available to me becomes really, really almost like addictive and alluring. And yeah. um, I end up using it in a way that after the fact, I can look back and go like, oh, that's ugly. I wish, I really wish that I didn't do that thing that I did. Um, uh, I, I absolutely gave in to the um, throes of power there. And mm-hmm. it's it's pretty, I, you know, and you, I, when I catch myself doing that, I, I attempt to, you know, do some kind of restitution for it. Sometimes I can, sometimes I can't. Uh, but I see this as just being the way that the world is. I don't think that we can uh, just... Uh, opt out of power. And I do think that a lot of things really do that power is always a factor, you know, in everything that is important to me. It's important in the the psychotherapeutic work that I do. It's important in the teaching that I do. It's important in the organizing I do. It's important in the um, interpersonal relationships that I have with friends and family members and all that. Um, and it's just there. And that is something that always like pops up and it's just like, you know, oh, you're going to abuse power at some point you're going to abuse. And and it's this, uh, that's one of those ghosts, which I would classify as kind of annoying. Um, but one of the ghosts <laughs> sure. that definitely pops up in my own yeah. own life on a pretty regular basis. Yeah, I think so for me too. You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm feeling like in a very dynamic way, we're talking about these, these sort of theoretical ghosts, you know, or these figures of theory that haunt us. And I absolutely would say Foucault is a primary one for me. Um, in some ways, I found Foucault and, and gravitated towards Foucault before I got into like more Marxist leftist sorts of approaches, although I was familiar with that as well. And I think today, I can't go a single day without thinking about Foucault's sense of power. Mm-hmm. And and almost to me, it, it's that it's been one of the most productive ghosts to continue to allow myself to be haunted by and not to disavow it, you know, and to yeah. sort of try to repress it. Because to me, it's one of those things that's fairly self-evident that whenever you're actually engaging in relationships and engaging in the workplace or like if you're involved in a university or in myself and like a nonprofit, these are all questions of power. And to me, the the extent to which we would disavow Foucault's ghost is to r- severely weaken our ability to understand exactly how those things play out. You know, I, I'm actually really glad that you you enjoy the Foucault series because I know that whenever we started doing it, we definitely had some hesitation to just ask ourselves, like, who in the hell is going to want to listen to this <laughs> for mm-hmm. 11 lectures? But the the response that we've had to it, I think, has been, uh, really surprising, and we're very humbled and thankful for that because that book for us was just something that we always wanted to read together, and it became sort of an excuse to finally do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I'm really glad to hear that it's hopefully exposing people to, to Foucault in an in depth way that hopefully corrects some of the um, maybe misunderstandings or straw straw man arguments about Foucault that I think a lot of people on the left have. You know, he's dismissed very easily as being some like you know, proto neoliberal bourgeois yeah. theorist or whatever the hell it is that people say about him. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I find Foucault to be pretty necessary and, and sort of um, you have to engage with him at some point if you want to be on the left today, because his, his questions and his, his analysis, I think is 
in some ways it's so crucial and fundamental to supplement like a more kind of like uh let's say orthodox understanding of marxism um, oh, yeah. to me i just i don't think i don't feel like you could be out there doing good organizing work in in the situation that we're in today especially in the u.s without that uh ghost haunting you all the time mm-hmm. it's funny because i you know I, I teach in a school of social work and mm-hmm. I, one of the things that I'm noticing is that a lot of the, uh, I'm teaching in a grad school. So all my students are getting their, their master's or their doctorate. Um, they've already gone through their, their bachelor's and a lot of them have maybe heard of Foucault. A lot of them haven't. And even the ones who've heard of him, they haven't read him. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and this is one of those things where I, I really think that the, um, the discipline and the profession of social work really, really, really need to get haunted by Foucault much more than they are. Oh, yeah, right? I totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I, I'm trying to to find one of my things that I'm doing right now is attempting to find ways to kind of work discipline and punish into a social work <laughs> curriculum. And, yeah. you know, it's it's actually it's it's hard um, to, to do this because um, there's a lot of people, you know, who would be teaching courses who haven't read that book. And you're going to teach a course, you have to read the book. And um you know, I don't know. Some of my professors, I'm pretty sure they didn't read the books they were trying to teach, but maybe that's another story. It, totally another story. And I'm, yeah. I'm with you on that for sure. <laughs> you know, but uh, it's I've, I've actually like, you know, I, I have more than one copy of that book and I've, I've loaned out copies of it to people. It's just like, yeah, you can check it out, you know, give it a read and, you know, come back and we'll, we'll talk about how we can use this. Maybe we don't use the whole thing. Maybe we mm-hmm. use excerpts or something like that, but let's yeah. just figure out some way to use this. And, um, you know, they read that first chapter with the really, really detailed description, you know, of the execution. Yeah. Uh, and, and they're just like, I can't, I cannot imagine having people read this. I'm like, this is exact, but you're, yes, we have to have people read this. You know, do you think that the, the argument is that what's going on in our prison system right now, do you think that it's more humane than this? Or is it yeah. just, is it just now something that we don't see, you know? And, and that's yeah. a really important question to ask. Don't you think we should be asking that question? Shouldn't everybody be haunted by the possibility that the society that we live in is not nearly as advanced or civilized or idealistic as we we imagine it to be, you know, in our our lives where we don't have to think about these things. Oh yeah, all right. We're getting to some good shit right now. So, I mean, a couple of things I would say to this. I think one reason why in let's say the social work profession, and I would be very curious if you were to talk to people who are like licensed professional counselors or licensed marriage and family therapists if they also have a huge gap around Foucault because in some way our professions speaking of power are part of the institutional shift that Foucault's whole project is designed to describe. You know, we are the people who work on the soul, as he would say. You know, we're part of clinics. We're part of these professions that they have this disciplinary sort of approach to them. And and I think one of the biggest questions that I talk a lot about, especially in organizing work around social work and unionizing and things like this, is how we have to step back and understand that part of the role of like the social worker as a professional has been to completely buy into this institutional shift to say, yeah, the role of you as the social worker is precisely to police the boundaries of who's in what class um, to sort of circumvent or undermine social pressures, which potentially could eventually lead to like mass riots and mass uprisings. I mean, one of the most powerful books I've ever read uh, is actually a book by Piven and Floward, and it's called uh, Regulating the Poor. And it's essentially a history of the relationship between social welfare policy and social work. And and one of the things it describes is how 
a lot of the reasons why work requirements were tied, and speaking of a ghost that haunts me, this is actually a big one today in my professional life. One of the things that, uh, one of the reasons why work requirements were tied to uh, things like receiving social welfare programs was very consciously and explicitly uh, a strategy that was aimed to undermine civil unrest and like poor and, and communities of color. I mean, that was like a very conscious thing that was done was to like create a sort of like pressure valve to release that. And I think that today, most social work as we encounter it, and a lot of like therapeutic professions, I think still do sort of we're haunted by this ghost. But it's again, it's one of those ghosts that hasn't even like formula. It's like this weird spectral entity that we don't even really think about, but we're playing out the effects of it. Yeah. So it, as you say that, there's this thing that I, I launch into uh, this this thing very early in every semester when I when I teach, right? Because I ask students, you know, kind of like, what if you're going to be a social worker, that's a choice. You know, you could have chosen, mm-hmm. chosen a lot of different stuff, but you chose this. I'm curious what it is that led you to desire to become a social worker as opposed to any of the other things you could do. And people give their, their various answers. Um, and, and a lot of it's about wanting, desiring to help other people. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I talk about, um, I push on that then. I'm like, okay, so there's a lot of other professions that also help other people, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it about the profession of social work in particular that you think, you know, makes it have the edge in that area? You know, and people give their various answers. And uh, then I, I do this thing where, you know, the next day I have like three or four students drop my class. Uh, because I, <laughs> <laughs> I'll say, you know, if we look at the the history of the profession of social work here, I think we could argue that at a certain point, social workers were workers, right? The worker component of the title, that's what they were. They were... I was just talking with someone about this earlier today, actually. Yeah. Yeah. They were, they were, they were in solidarity with and members of the working class, right? Mm -hmm. Working classes. That's what they did. Um, They found people, you know, who had boots on their neck. There was, there was this bigger, more powerful institutional force that, that had a boot on the neck of the working classes. Um, and social workers, I think, tried to ally with those who had the boots on their neck, and they tried to push the people wearing the boots off yeah. um, it, through a variety of different tactics and technologies and, and whatnot. Um, but now, what I think has happened, uh, largely since social work has turned into a profession and really kind of libidinally invested in mm-hmm. this idea of, a, of the professional, uh, is they've gone from being the people who are, you know, helping attack those who wear the boots to, to being the people who wear the boots and, yeah. and that, mm-hmm. that social yeah. workers now are oftentimes, you know, they're working for hospitals and they're working for, um, uh, different agencies like, like child welfare agencies and, and different, yeah. different things. And, and what they're, they're doing is they're actually opting people out of services. They're, they're telling the people who are right now, the working classes, uh, kind of, adapt and start start becoming uh m- more of a, a better servant to capitalism uh, mm-hmm. ultimately and yeah. and so what I, I challenge students to do is to say like you know do you want to be a social worker or do you want to be a social warden and uh i i would say that probably all of you when i say that most people are going to say well of course i want to be a social worker but I, i'm going to push on that and say i'm not so sure that that's true right um <laughs> yeah i think that that i mean realistically in a room full of however many people there are some people that if we're being honest actually desire more to be wardens and less to be workers it's easier to be a warden it's Mm -hmm. you know you get more power (laughs) when you're a warden 
Uh, yeah. You have more security um, when you're a warden. When you're a worker, you are opting into a vulnerable population, you know, especially mm-hmm. in this, this stage of, of late capitalism here in the United States. So yeah. really think about that, you know. And, and what I'm trying to do in that is to get sort of the, the ghost of social workers past, you know, emphasis on workers, uh, to kind of haunt the students that I have. And I think that some some don't want that. Like I said, they end up dropping the class. And, and some really take to it, which is, off, you know, very great. I think when that happens, it's great for me. I don't know if it's great for other people, but I enjoy it. Uh, and whatnot. So anyway, I'm going to stop talking now and uh, turn it over. No, to you. I mean I, I appreciate that greatly because I think that you know while not working at uh, a university as a professor, I sort of supervise social work interns who are in bachelor or uh, graduate level programs. And in some ways, I feel like I do a very similar thing, which is to say, okay, you come in here and you tell me that you want to help people. Well, if you're going to do that, you need to understand a couple of key ghosts that you have to reckon with if you want to, based on, you have to reckon with those ghosts to figure out how you're going to answer this question of what is this going to look like for you. And Mm -hmm. so this sort of history of like social workers past and how at different points, social workers were defined as workers and allied with their clients and with vulnerable populations and the poor and the oppressed and marginalized and exploited. And that ghost has to be in that conversation. Another, another one, and God, I don't even know how to even talk about this one, but one ghost I think about quite a bit in terms of social work in the nonprofit world and in like philanthropy is the ghost of the Ludlow massacre. Mm-hmm. And I've talked about this on the show of where, you know, there were a bunch of striking workers and their families out in Ludlow, Colorado against, uh, I think it was, um, it was one of, uh, it was a plant that was owned by Rockefeller and eventually they were gunned down. They were gunned down by a couple of uh, militia like that were basically hired by the by the Rockefeller company to basically just sit up on a hill and just mow down these people. And part of what led to the birth of philanthropic organizations as we know them was a PR move by the Rockefeller Foundation. Well, basically, they created the Rockefeller Foundation to say, listen, we have to correct this image of you as this tyrannical capitalist oppressor. So maybe if we start giving some of your fortune away to these charitable causes, that this will redeem you in the eyes of the public. And most of social work in the nonprofit realm, we all thrive on what is called the nonprofit industrial complex. And the whole genesis of that nonprofit industrial complex, I think in a large in a large way, owes its birth to the Ludlow massacre. Mm-hmm. So for me, I, you know, I show up in a nonprofit, and the and I kind of think about that pretty often. That you know, in some ways, part of organizations like this, why we even exist, is a response to the just brutal slaying of of striking workers and their families. And to me, as a social worker, it's that you have to understand the context of that, and to understand that part of the ghosts that haunt you being in a particular kind of institution are the ghosts of these workers struggles, the, the lives that were lost, the strikes that happened, the violence, the mass violence that occurred. And to me, that's a, a sort of a strange and tragic ghost that I think haunts the profession, um, at least as I encounter it today. And I, you know, try to share that with the, the young social workers that I supervise and try to at least help them ask those questions about those sort of ghosts. Because if, if you don't, like no one is going to point them out to you, I think. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, you know, the, one of the things that I, I see coming out of this a lot is, um, and this maybe can, can lead us in a new direction here. Uh, the, the way that I describe a lot of the work that I do is dialectical pessimism. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. And, and 
I maybe somebody else used that term. If, if somebody else is using it and I'm stealing it, I just don't know that because I, I, it seemed to me like I came up with this, uh, though I probably didn't. But when I use those those terms, uh, what I'm thinking about, cause, and I, I talk to students and I, I talk to uh, you know, other people, LCPCs, uh, uh, marriage and family therapists, people who do pastoral care. I, I try to talk to a lot of people about this because I do see that there is this um, very appealing uh, desire to sort of like look at what one does and to be like, oh, look at me. I'm a, I'm a good social worker. I'm a good mental health person. I'm, a, I'm just a good person, you know, really trying to make a positive difference in the lives of people who are in mm-hmm. conditions that are worse than, than mine. And I want to lift them up and I want, I I'm committed to this. This is cool. And, and I feel really good about it. And um, my reaction is to be like, okay, that, that all of that is, is fine. But I have this pessimistic point of view that it's not anywhere near, you know, enough. I, I take a look at the conditions of the world right now and I am very dissatisfied with them. I'm not satisfied. Right. And, and so I look at the efforts that I'm doing and my reaction is it's not enough. You know, this mm-hmm. is that what I'm doing is it's it's a it's a drop, you know, um, in a in a bucket, and um, it's probably not going to have that much of an impact. You know, it'll have some impact, yeah. sure, but probably not much of one. And that is a pessimistic point of view. But I think that for me, you know, the only way to actually um, affect change is to have that to go deep into the pessimism, because then if you do that, I think what might happen is a is a dialectical reversal. You know, you'll you'll start to it'll pessimism will turn into its opposite. It's almost like pessimism is the new optimism. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you get pessimistic enough, and that that pessimism doesn't just put you into a, a pit of nihilism, and instead it motivates you to you know change things in some kind of substantive way, then um, things might change in some kind of substantive way. You might actually have something to be optimistic about. But the only way to get there is to go through this this tunnel of pessimism yeah. you know ultimately and and i've had a really hard time i think selling this um to anybody but it well, seems let, like it makes let me sense ask to me you. so as as a fellow uh you know dialectical pessimist or revolutionary dialectical pessimist or whatever you i mean i definitely am very much in this camp mm-hmm. uh this is i would say the best uh general description of my like almost existential phenomenological orientation to the world in general that I have yet found. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a good thing we're doing the show together because there's a lot of, a lot of uh, sympathy, I think. Um, but I would ask you, I mean, because this is something I'm always curious about. Why, why, why do you think that's such a hard sell? Oh, that's a great question. So kind of a compound answer here. One, I think that um, from a very young age, we are, kind of um trained you know what i mean to to do to look at things a certain way and it's um this makes me think of um antonio gramsci right and the prison notebooks here uh there's there's things you know he's he's in prison in fascist italy looking out and going like fascism like for real italy fascism (laughs) like why why are you doing like can can you not you know but what i what i get from him uh, one of the things i get from him is this idea, you know, that um, certain things are just kind of presented to you as normal and people soak that up, right? They just soak up what, uh, you know, when you grow up in a family, if there's a lot of yelling, yelling is normal for you. You don't think it's weird, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. If you grow up in a family where there's like no yelling, yelling is extremely weird, you know, to to you. And that's, you don't, we don't pick it. You know, the, the other 
precedes us. Um, yeah. we're, we're born into a world, we're thrown into it without any say in, in the conditions that we find ourselves contained within. And because of the conditions we find ourselves contained within, there's going to be certain things that are just seen as that's the way that things are because it is. And people don't even think to ask a question usually about um, if those things that are so normative are actually good or bad or, or anything. They just sort of like take it and run with it. One of those things I think is this idea that you should um, be positive, that you should try to um, engage the world with, without being um, uh, like an Eeyore, right? Like, like that's, that, that's bad to do that. Like Eeyore is not good. You shouldn't be Eeyore. You know, Eeyore is the, the thing that you want to always avoid being or Eeyore is a cautionary tale and, and all that. And, and, you know, it takes somebody for, for me, like Mark Fisher was a great example of this to kind of like really point this stuff out to be like, now, hold on a second. Um, I'm going to describe this process of being a pessimist, right? And and kind of talk, describe what that is and, and why I am one and um, how I see pessimism being a useful thing, you know, to affect meaningful change, to go like, oh, wow, you know, it's 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 one of those things... Um, there's a psychoanalyst, Christopher Bolos, uh, writes about this in a book called The Shadow of the Object. He calls them unthought knowns. Mm. They're, you know, they're, they're these things that you know, but you never think them, right? You never yeah. actually mm-hmm. put them in the symbolic register. You don't, you don't write them down. You don't say them to another person. They're there, but since they've never been symbolized, you can't do much with them. And so I think that... Um, when they do get symbolized or crystallized, you know, in, into the, into something that people can actually consider, that opens up possibilities. But when you do that, when you you perform the action of rendering those sorts of um, um, revolutionary pessimist, pessimistic ideas uh, in the symbolic, and you expose people to that, they're going to be taken aback. They're going to it's going to be very foreign, and they're going to because it, it's it's like. Um, you you get in the shower and for whatever reason the hot water doesn't work and you're just like blasted by cold water it's like, yeah. like you, i didn't see that coming oh my god and it's uncomfortable and so the natural reaction i think is to back away from it and and, mm-hmm. and to try to reestablish comfort um as quickly as you possibly can and and, and uh but maybe if that wakes you up and kind of go you you have the option then to to go like oh maybe i do want to engage with this even though it's uncomfortable Foucault is one of those people in the same way, right? Um, you know, when I read certain things by Foucault, it doesn't make me feel great, right? It makes me feel awkward and strange and not in a good way. And um, it's it would be w- one thing I can do in those situations is I can um, put it down, you know what I mean? Just disengage mm-hmm. and, you know, think about something else or read a different thing or, I don't know, um, go eat a bagel. <laughs> I could do so many other things at that point. Yeah, yeah. But um, it, 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 because I think, uh, you know, I've been fortunate enough to have uh, really great people in my life who, who encourage me to kind of like lean into that when I, I experience it. It's something that I've gotten better at over time. Uh, I think that that's a big part of what I'm trying to do in my own work right now is, is to, to kind of get people to develop that muscle a little bit more. So that they, when they do encounter those sorts of things that they find off-putting or uh, difficult, that they're they're able to not just disengage and, and run away uh, from them and then never go back, right? Um, uh, have the develop the capacities to re-engage with the things that make you you uncomfortable. But of course, that means it's being uncomfortable. Um, uh, 
I think that the one of the ways that I've had some success with it, uh, not being as tough a sell, is um, likening it to things like exercise, right? Mm-hmm. The idea being that if you're going to exercise and get something out of it, that you're going to have to you know, put your body through things that it's not going to enjoy, that it's going to find difficult, um, and you're going to be sore if, if you do it the next day. Uh, but there's a benefit to that, right? You know, um, and uh, that's why you continue to engage in that. And I think the same thing can happen if we engage pessimism with that that kind of a mindset. So I don't know if that actually answered the question or not. I feel like I just sort of rambled a lot, but hopefully there's no, something meaningful there. No, it was good. There. Actually, um, you, well, I mean, this is such a, a potent topic, I guess. I would say that, um, I mean, a couple of things for me, I think, uh, really stand out whenever we start talking about this as like a general orientation to you know, not just like politics, but to me, it's just like, I have a hard time talking about this without also being like very, very personal about it because yeah. this is something I've wrestled with um, a lot of my life because I think this sort of general orientation for me has a lot to, it has a huge impact and sway on the actual like day-to-day relationships that I have in my life, whether mm-hmm. romantic or with friendships or with colleagues and other like social workers or whatever it might be. Um so let me, God, there's like so many places that go with this. Um, I, I guess I would start here. Uh, to me, I think that one of the reasons why this is such a challenging position to take is actually haunted. It has to do with the ghost of capital as we know it that haunts us in terms of identity formation. Mm-hmm. I think that most of us, what we're trained in, the general relations of capitalism that we grow up in that is sort of this... Um, uh, uh, what was the what was the phrase like this unthought, um, unthought the known. unthought known yeah is that there's this injunction that the whole center point the whole sort of a uh, center of gravity around your identity should be a sense of enjoyment mm-hmm. and whether this is with relationships or how you consume or whatever it is there's this idea that I am not actually living my life unless I'm enjoying it mm-hmm. and I think that to 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 approach a sort of dialectical pessimistic sort of position, I'm going to draw on some of my own therapeutic work here because I do, uh, I focus on what's called emotion focused therapy. And I have like a really strong psychoanalytic and attachment sort of approach to how I do my work. But there's this phrase that has to do with dealing with sort of unprocessed or unsymbolized trauma. Mm-hmm. And the phrase is that if you want to leave somewhere, you have to arrive there first. Mm. And I think that what what this injunction to enjoy does is it sort of becomes a sensor around the deeply core sort of terror and fear and like deep sadness and anger that I think most of us feel. And we know it's there because it doesn't take a lot to look around the world today with the access to information and, and feel that, holy shit, like the planet is careening towards the brink. And what am I going to do about that? Mm-hmm. It's, and I think that it has this sort of effect of pushing us to uh, concede to that injunction to enjoy even more, right? That at least I know I, I can enjoy these next few moments. At least I know that this one person's life, I made a difference. Now, to be clear, like it, trying to be dialectical about this, I think that's something that has to be worked through and isn't something to also just be completely like disavowed or completely rejected. But to me... I think that whenever I, I, I try to figure out for myself, why did I come to this particular position? Yeah. I would say I would say two things. One, the study of the history of, you know, the nineteenth, twentieth century, as much as I've been able to do that, makes me 
have a hard time not looking at that and just seeing the catastrophic wreckage mm-hmm. of many, many things. And to me, I don't understand how you can look at history and not at least have to stare that in the face. And oh, so yeah. for me, that's sort of the introduction of the pessimism is to just realistically look at that and say, the catastrophe of that is just completely overwhelming and almost even hard to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also know that if if we're going to do anything that isn't just going to return to some sort of like melancholic, uh, deeply libidinal sort of perverse attachment to these old ideas that have long since died, that we have to arrive at that at the understanding of the catastrophic wreckage as as it exists i think yeah. we have to start there and i think that a lot of the folks that i've organized with and that i've encountered day to day i think you know i either see um a sort of pure abandoning yourself to this injunction to enjoy mm-hmm. or i see a sort of a return to this past and almost like it's kind of almost like in the shining whenever nicholson's character you know like he 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 concedes to the ghost of the past you know, he sort of becomes completely lost in this fantasy of that. And I think that's what I see a lot is like, it's sort of this one or the other. I think it is deeply, it's very difficult to stay in that sort of realm of pessimism, not, even if it's not dialectical, but just to arrive at the pessimism first, because mm-hmm. the idea that you have to now contend with this feeling of powerlessness, of being so small and this huge historical trajectory Um, I think that's terrifying. I think it provokes anxiety. And in terms of my own personal life, you know, I mean, without going into a lot of the details, you know, I I have a part of the reason why I got into social work and why I focus on working with survivors of violence and trauma is because I have a lot of that in my own background. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's this strange sort of like dialectical idea that the exposure to trauma brings pain and suffering. And it also brings a particular way of seeing the world that you just don't get access to without encountering trauma that directly. And to me, sometimes I'm not really sure if I'm a dialectical revolutionary pessimist or whatever because of like the political like theory and history, or if it's because of my own background gives me a predisposition to these things. I'm sure it's some weird combination of both, mm-hmm. which, you know, I'm coming to terms with. But I guess at the end of the day, I don't know. There's that feeling of the ungroundedness, right? It's like it makes everything strange. It makes everything hard to understand or know what to do with. And I don't necessarily think it wins you a lot of friends either. Mm-hmm. Um, I also know that to me, I don't know how to do anything else at this point. Yeah, so it's a bit of a long answer, but it's it's kind of the best one I have. So that is the first half of my long interview with Comrade Adam. And next week, you'll be able to hear the second half of that interview. Unless you support the show on Patreon. Because if you support the show on Patreon right now, right this red hot second, you could go over there 
and you could find the entire uncut interview that I did with Comrade Adam, and you could listen to that. Uh, there's a lot more babbling in the beginning and at the end, if you listen to that. Um, and the reason that I make it available is I'm, I'm sort of, uh, I'm, I'm copying somebody here. Uh, Krista Tippett, who does On Being, which is a, a show that maybe you're surprised that I listened to that after listening to this long hour of me talking to somebody about dialectical pessimism. But I do, I do listen to that show. And one of the things that I like that they do is they release uh, two versions of their show. They release the uh, produced hour-long version, which is you know released on radio stations. And then they also release an unedited cut of the interview that they do with somebody. And I'm trying to do the same thing with the content that I'm producing here on From 78. So if you should support the show at any level, no matter what level you're at, you everybody gets the same rewards because I don't want to... Uh, make it so that people who have more disposable income are more able to enjoy extra stuff than the people who don't have a disposable income. So anybody who supports the show at any level gets access to all the stuff. And one of the things that you can listen to right now is the uncut interview with Comrade Adam. However, if you don't want to support the show at all, that's cool. Um, and the second half of my interview will be up in about a week. Thank you so much for taking the time to download and listen to this podcast. There's all sorts of other podcasts you could be spending your time on. I appreciate that you are loaning me your ears for this limited amount of time. I really, really, really do appreciate it. So folks, until next week, make glorious mistakes. I'm from 78.